Welcome, beautiful people. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie. This week we are covering Concrete Cowboy. Uh, It's a fascinating story. Sent to live with his estranged father for the summer, a rebellious teen finds a kinship in a tight-knit Philadelphia community of black cowboys. And this is based on truth. This is based on Ghetto Cowboy by Greg Neary, a fictionalization of the Fletcher Street Urban Writing Club. And uh, you, you said a bunch of, a mixture of genre even. It, yeah, I mean, it starts as this street movie and then it ends up to be this Western. I mean, it's a, it really is a, a <laughs> bizarre. And I was kind of gripped by it because I thought it was one movie at the beginning of it. And by the end of it, uh, it's a completely different movie. And it, and it drew me in. And the most impressing thing about it is it ends with this, uh, you know, with this almost documentary style credit sequence where it involves real people that were in the movie but are actually part of the thing of the real thing so the my immediate thing and coming up off of watching it is i have got to know the history behind all of this because as they say at the end of the film is like there are people in philadelphia who don't know that there are horses in philadelphia that have been there longer than most of the people so i imagine that most people have no concept of this. So I've, I'm mm-hmm. dying to hear what the truth is, what the history is behind all of this. But yeah, it stars yeah. Idris Elba and Caleb uh, McLaughlin from uh, Stranger Things. It's produced by Idris Elba. So this is this is a really fascinating story. And I can't I can't wait to rip into it. Yeah, so funny that, like you said, with the end, you think it's going to be, oh, here's a photograph of the people and here's who it's based on. And no, 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 the person is actually in the movie <laughs> yeah. playing yeah, a right. version of themselves. What in the world? No, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll we'll get to that towards the end and what the status of it because it's still ongoing and they're still fighting to to the plot points of the movie in real yeah, life. Yeah, it's it's um, prescient, relevant. <laughs> but I just had to dig way back into the history of cowboys, African American cowboys, right? African Americans and horsemanship in the United States, all yeah. sorts of stuff like that because that's where this is drawing from. Uh, so journey with us way back here as far as the cowboy lifestyle coming into its own in Texas, horses, cows brought over from Spain when they colonized in the 1500s, but it didn't really boom as we know the term cowboy until the late 1800s. And of course, started with the Spanish, then Mexican cattle farmers. Baquero is the Spanish term, which then gets anglicized into buckaroo. Ah. They're the original quote unquote cowhands, cowboys. But in terms of African-American black influence, Slaves were brought over and settled alongside everyone else in the frontier and establishing cattle ranches on Spanish and Mexican land. And so by 1860, this is 15 years after Texas becomes a state, 30% of the population is slaves living in Texas. Wow. And they're also all working on the cattle ranches and on horseback and moving the cattle. So following that post-Civil War, and keep in mind, this was bizarre to me, but barbed wire wasn't even invented by then. Really? So so these are the advances. Like you need a lot of people on a lot of horses moving right. a lot of cows in a lot of land. It's all <laughs> it's all big, you know. So cattle ranchers are compelled to hire now freed, skilled African American workers hmm. doing the job that they need done because there's thousands of cows roaming aimlessly through the wilderness. You've got to have people to to work it. So this was also one of the few jobs open to men of color who didn't want low-skilled work or the other jobs that are being offered. 
You know, and things are connecting for me already because I think what, what what takes me off guard about this whole story is that its setting is in Philadelphia. That is something that is something so bizarre about this because if we were telling this story and it was all in Texas, I would go right. It would all mm-hmm. feel incredibly natural. I'd always be like, well, no brainer. But because this is in Philadelphia, this is a place that, that nobody thinks. So I I'm fascinated here to trace this line all the way back. I know we've <laughs> we have really gone there. Yeah, um, yeah. But the, yeah, I mean, it's it, the the setting in itself. I think is what's what's something about what is so fascinating about this story in in, in itself. Mm-hmm. So how it, in the it, world it, are yeah. we going to get from Texas all the way over? <laughs> over <there? laughs> well, let's journey along. So yeah. all these enormous herds of cattle need to be moved, and this is pre railroad or at least railroad not accessing vast swaths of the country where you'd need to move them from south to north and and here and there these black cowboys eventually end up once the railroads you know going into to jump ahead to the philadelphia portion moving to the north or as cattle drives are lessened jim crow laws in the south etc keeping the cowboy traditions mm. but being pushed into larger cities in the north so that's mm-hmm. how they end up there in the meantime though Previous to that, during all of the cattle driving situation, this is a great job as it pertains to being treated equally, equal pay, equal food, equal bedding, not necessarily if they stop in towns, but out in the plains where everybody's doing the same job. Right, right. And then even this is hard to piece together the research on, so it is somewhat true and also somewhat not. But in terms of the term cowboy, some people speculate that it was also specifically reserved for black ranchers. Yeah, I've heard that before. Because the the white term would be cow hand or cow poke, but the more derogatory term is cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like we said, 30% of the population of Texas was slaves pre-Civil War. Historians estimate between 15 to 25% of cowboys were black. So one in four, which is an astronomical number when you look at the comparison I'm in inst- media. Yeah. Or the tropes, and I'm of instantly the going to like, well, I'm instantly going to to media as being the kind of the <laughs> they've 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 turned it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure that the media is is responsible, <laughs> the, you know, like just just entertainment. The advent of of Hollywood through the early 1900s, oh, yeah. uh, that the image of the cowboy changed uh, significantly uh, by the time that we get John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the movie The Searchers with John Wayne is based on a novel, and that novel took inspiration from a black cowboy, Britt Johnson. Yeah. So okay. directly, this is somebody yeah. that was changed um, in terms beyond the cowboys, just uh, horses in general. So the winner of the first Kentucky Derby ever in 1875 yeah. was a black man, Oliver Lewis. Really? Yeah. The sport oh, cool. was founded, or not founded, but was like helmed at the very least by African-American men. So oh, I had no idea. of the 15 jockeys of the first Kentucky Derby, 13 were African-American. I had no idea. And African-Americans won 15 of the first 28 derbies. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Why don't people know this? I, <laughs> Why yeah. is this not- well, that was <laughs> where you're talking about like going on and, and moving to the north to yeah. the northern cities and and keeping that it's like in terms of horse racing founding jockeys were young slaves who served as riders and trainers on southern plantations uh, you know they cleaned the stables fed and groomed the horses they established a bond with the horses that white jockeys could not there was a guy Isaac Burns Murphy who was called the black maestro he won 628 of his over 1,400 races. Oh, my God. Contracts were, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per season for their thing. He received 
He was the highest paid jockey in the United States. He had a mansion in Lexington, oh owned God. racehorses in, what in real estate. What, ye- what year? This is the late 1800s. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> um, amazing. But because of the success and the prolificness of this as a business, there started to be more segregation, more pushing people out, more you know bribes to stop, et cetera. This is horrifying, but from 1921, so the first Kentucky Derby was in 1875, and like I said, 15 of the first 28 were won by African Americans. From 1921 to 2000, there were zero black jockeys at the Kentucky Derby. Oh my God. That is horrifying. Yeah. I was like, what are you about to say? (laughs) Like, like, uh, to hear that they're so dominant out of the gate. Yeah. That's their sport. Yeah. That's... Uh, criminal. That's bizarre. It's like, that's not at all what it was. Yeah. What a distortion. One of the profiles of somebody who hopefully will not be lost to recent media, which will explain that, but some people say, and this is questionable whether or not he's the actual influence, but he is actually the real sort of Lone Ranger character, whether Mm -hmm. or not the Lone Ranger (laughs) was inspired by him. He actually was this person. Wow. This guy, Bass Reeves, captured over 3,000 criminals in his 32-year career as a uh, deputy. He shot 14 folks in in self-defense, but never got seriously wounded, but had his hat and belt shot off before. But that's crazy. Belt shot off. (laughs) (laughs) Also, arrest, like that arrest record is 94 per year. Wow. Out, out in the Wild West. He was the first black that's, deputy. That's over. That's a, that's a two a week. <laughs> yeah. God. He was he was the first black deputy west of the Mississippi. That's his claim to fame. And also the best wow. of anyone that ever existed. Wow. His, his life, just as insane as his track record, he was a runaway slave from Arkansas. He was forced to fight in the Confederate Army and then found his freedom forcibly the details are murky, mm-hmm. but went into Native American land, hold out there, learned Cherokee, Creek, Seminole languages, like learned all these wow. Native American languages. Then when the Civil War ended, went back to Arkansas, but was hired by the U.S. Marshals, recruited because they knew that he spoke languages. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. Marshals hired him to support local law enforcement, apprehend fugitives, all the stuff that a marshal does in that time. But he had all these crazy tactics, superimposing too. I think he was like six foot two, mm. just this massive dude. He wore disguises to sneak up on bandits. Whoa. He used Native American tactics that he'd learned to, to pursue long distances on horseback. And there was a film made about him in 2019 mm. called Hell on the Border, but it wasn't Nobody knows about it, and it wasn't that big. Yeah, and I haven't um, heard about that at all. But he did have, and I don't know if this is a spoiler, but it came out a while ago, the, a pivotal role in the Watchmen TV show right. by Damon Lindelof, because the original superhero was a black man. It's this guy who, the guy who becomes Hooded Justice is inspired by. I was going to bring that up. Oh, yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, I was going to bring that up. So, the, <laughs> oh, wow, this yeah. is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, he's he they watches a film on this guy Bass Reeves and then that's who he's inspired by. Wow. And then the most recent thing why I said he's not going to be lost to history is that we already mentioned her Chloe Zhao doing Nomadland. Yeah. She's been working on a biopic on this guy for a while. Really? So yeah, for oh, Amazon. That's interesting. 
So that's, I don't know. That's when interesting because that you know I've already mentioned the docu in you know the ending of the of the film that goes into this yeah. kind of docu style, and I you know I was getting Nomadland vibes during watching the film because there's just parts about it that are so interesting and and unique and real feeling, authentic feeling that I was I was mm-hmm. getting this this Nomadland feeling. So then I have that docu ending where realizing that I was really seeing real you know non actors, uh, yeah. you know doing dramatic scenes. I was like, oh my god, this. Is this is very very similar? So it's interesting that <laughs> that she is even tied into you know getting into black cowboys into into yeah. this realm. This is fascinating. And that was her previous film, The Rider, was about a Native American. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is cowboy. wild. So this she's is crazy in the mix. So on to the film story, filmed primarily in North Philly. This is the first film from this writer director Ricky Staub. But like you said, it features the real cowboy citizens who served as advisors on the screenplay. Everybody's on the set. But this Ricky guy, his story into getting into this is interesting as well in terms of the authenticity of it all. Right. Ricky um, Staub is a white guy, correct? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this Philly. is his first feature as far as yeah. I can see. Yeah. This yes. Is, yeah. So this is a yeah. debut. So he had moved to L.A. and was hired as an assistant to Sam Mercer, who's a big Hollywood producer who worked on The Last Airbender, Snow White and the Huntsman, mm. a lot of M. Night Shyamalan stuff. Big scope movies, yeah. Worked for him. They did work in Philly, and then Ricky moved back to Philly. Hmm. Is trying to do his thing, more commercial work, smaller pieces like that, mm-hmm. commercials and things. But he's trying to do something more, taking the advice that he got from head honcho in LA. And mm-hmm. at one point, he meets this homeless man who'd been formerly incarcerated. And he said it was like a movie moment because he's laying in bed that night, and this vision comes to him. He's like, I need to have a production company with a mission. And so he starts this production company in 2011 called Neighborhood Film Co. And it's designed to be able to hire adults who are returning from incarceration oh, wow. and, and give them skills, tools, resources. And what's crazy about it, I'll post a link to the TED Talk that he gave. That's really awesome. But it's an apprenticeship system that has really nothing to do with film work. He's like, it's, it's not about <laughs> getting people and then having them make movies. It's about... So, for example, one of the people is, was an apprentice, and now this guy runs his own paint supply company. How does wow. that tie to film at all? <laughs> it's like 98% of film work, If you, I mean, you can speak to this, mm-hmm. is admin, business, project management, client interfacing. Like, I mean, you, you deal know, with you, every every sort of industry. You deal with all of, you know, any, any kind of professional all over the board in all of these industries. So, I mean, if you got in, say, if he, you know, if he was working in art department, that's that. And, 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 and then you say he's running his own paint supply. Say, like, <laughs> right. To me, as somebody working in the industry, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. There's a line straight through that. Uh, and yeah. I know that's hard to kind of iterate for people, but it's like if once if you're working in the industry and you're working, you know, you, you need vendors, you have to go get paint from somebody. So eventually you get to know those types of people. And you just build relationships. And that's really honestly how it, how it goes. But it all has yeah. to come from an opportunity. Somebody has to give you a break. Somebody has to give you a shot. And that's what I'm hearing here is this program sounds like it's giving a shot that most of oh, these yeah. people would never really even consider or think about, more or less not even have the access to. Um, you know, yeah, and that's it the wouldn't even thing. occur to them and they wouldn't have the access to it. So it's kind of a double a double shot here of like this. It's kind of a, an amazing idea. And I can see that it's going to obviously or I hope so. It's going to lead him to this to this story. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. well, in a, in, a, in a work in a backwards way. But that's also what's so great about his 
efforts and endeavors is they are altruistic for the sake of it and good things happen to him because he's like people are like well how could you scale this and he's like i don't want to like i want other companies to do this like we actually my company is better because the more we have to teach somebody how to do something the more you look at your processes and you're like okay we can cut this out we don't need this if you need to show somebody all of this and keep them accountable and work with more people to make that happen mm-hmm. you're going to do better as a company so he's like i don't i don't we're going to have three apprentices a year and that's for my small film production company, but other companies should be doing this as well. And right. that's the the onus for his TED Talk. So just super awesome, dude. That's what he's working on in Philly. And at one point, he's looking out of his office. This is in 2012. And he sees this guy riding a horse down the street in Philadelphia. Yeah. He's also, a, it's attached to a buggy tricked out with speakers and rims. Yes. He says, what in the world is this? <laughs> and they, I believe they duplicate that for the- yeah. The film and stuff. But this is how he sees it. So he runs out to talk to the guy. Yes. He's like, what the heck is this? <laughs> and that leads him to this Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club. There you go. And also discovers this author, G. Neri's book, which he then files away. And this is 2012 where he sees this. But he but he looks into this concept because mm-hmm. this guy, G. Neri, wrote a book in 2011. And even he had previously worked in film and new media and trailer companies in LA and then started writing. And he writes about mm. all different stuff. He had written a book about a teen who turns to chess. He wrote this book, which is called Ghetto Cowboy in 2011. And he was inspired by a magazine article that he'd seen. He got into graphic novels and written a bunch of stuff in that regard. Wait, wait, chess and graphic novels? <laughs> Not marketable. <laughs> well, so that's what's great about him. And I looked more into his life because one of the things that he had written about is a graphic novel called Yummy. And it's about based on a true story about this 11-year-old who had fired a gun at gang members trying mm. to be a part of a gang and accidentally killed this neighborhood girl. Oh the God. police search for him and find him dead in a tunnel killed by members of his own gang. This is a young adult oh my graphic novel because that's his whole thing. He's like, I want to use novels, graphic novels, illustrations, characters not seen for reluctant readers, kids in the city that aren't going to, you know, they're not going to read a book about horses. (laughs) That doesn't interest them at all. So that's his thing. He's like, my books cater to this underground audience. I'm never going to be on the New York Times bestsellers list. I am selling directly to schools and libraries. Teachers give them to kids who either can't afford them or my one book in this library is read by hundreds of kids, which is not going to get on any list or statistic. But he said one thing that he does here is that his books are among the most stolen from the libraries. Really? Which that's a great one. That's a is great the best, <laughs> is the best thing. So and, and really, truly, a lot of the content from his book, which is a fictional account, but then he read the article, went there, visited, did more research, talked to folks as well. The content is the same as the film in terms of the characters, the father-son dynamic, hmm. the impending doom of the establishment, the climax at the end. And, you know, it's it's a young adult thing. <laughs> Easy to read, breeze right through it. In, well, and just an in large swaths, just this, this clash of you have this Western uh, ideal, this stable of people uh, in the middle of a, of a city. Um, and and it's still ongoing that, you know, they're being pushed out. Um, and that is central to the conflict of the film, but and it's mm-hmm. but it's still a real thing. So that, I'm really interested to hear how that ends up going on. But it, uh, most of the drama here is from this juxtaposition of this Western, you know, uh, culture still in the middle of this urban 
uh, mm-hmm. city and how does that mix and how can it survive and we're watchable how does it survive it's and it's hard and but these people yeah. are keeping it going and keeping this culture alive uh, trying to keep it on the same ground but it's yeah. it's really really fascinating that this so, that the city popping up around it but they're they're reluctant to move yeah so ricky had like i said that juxtaposition of seeing the guy with the buggy with the rims and everything right but files that away he's still doing his apprenticeship program through the neighborhood film company he goes to court hearings he goes to different things speaking presenting this to various nonprofits and whatnot as an opportunity or to people that are on their way out and need the next thing uh so in 2017 he he's offering this option to this guy eric miller and eric miller had said in this court hearing that he had bought a horse a week after he had gone home which Mm. sort of sounded odd like well that's a really bizarre thing to do to to help yourself you know right when you get out and then he said aha that that fletcher street thing so they strike up a friendship he learns more about it yeah starts to want to tell this story to help gain attention to this cause and also wants to get out of the commercial work and realizes if I'm going to tell a story, it's not going to be with Sprite, you know, like it has to be something else. So Ricky makes a short called The Cage. It gains festival attention. The plan, he was writing the script. He had gotten the rights to the book. The plan was to use the entire community for all the cast members. Hmm, Like I said, he knows the community. He had been involved with Fletcher Street for years. He had the same intro that Caleb has in the movie about shoveling the stalls. Like his, he had Mm -hmm. a similar initiation, was taught how to ride, went to the barbecues. He knew it all. Wow. Which is why it's so authentic. And why, like I said, this is his first feature, low budget script, going to use everybody that he knows and use the story from the book. He had just, though, because of this short that he had done, gotten a new agent, which is a part of the same agency as Idris Elba, who had wanted to be involved in more projects uplifting to the African-American community. Right. Right. Okay. So Ricky's agent was a part of that meeting, gave Idris Elba the script. He read it on a flight over from America to England. And then called and said, hey, I want to do this with you. Wow. And I want to help produce it. Galvanized, um, man, after exactly. that. Exactly. And so he said, well, when Idris Elba calls you and said, hey, I want to be in your movie, you're not going to be like, well, we're using. <laughs> well, we're using, I'm uh, uh, using a local non-act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so interestingly, also, we talked about him with uh, the Billy Holiday episode, Lee Daniels. Yes, uh, yes. Came on to produce as well because he's from Philadelphia. And. His sister, who still sense. lives there, that's great. Yeah, she knew about the neighborhood film thing that Ricky was doing, so yeah. she could sort of vet and be like, "Oh yeah, this guy's good for it. Yeah, like he's not going to mess us up." So just all of that goodwill previously gives this project an opportunity. And, it, and it's interesting because we called him out at the beginning of the segment you know, that he's a white guy, but you know, hearing it, you can't discredit him because it's all about keeping it to the authenticity of the story. And then people like Idris Elba see that and attach themselves to it. And it gets exponentially greater, uh, the authenticity that he's trying to, to hone in on. I mean, that's how you go about doing something like this. If, you know, if you're worried about, if you're telling a story that you should be telling, well, you know, that's that you're, maybe you're asking the wrong question here. It's like, do you, do you understand the story well enough to tell it? And that's, that's the question. And you can only do it by getting inundated into a culture uh, like this. If you really want to bring somebody else's life to the screen, you've got to get, you've got to get your hands dirty. And Idris was up for the weird proto documentary slash fiction approach 
and because of how massive he is in terms of the production, the pre-production, the filming, everything, just insane, still super small, still fast. Like Ricky yeah. said, we saved a lot of money because we didn't get any chairs for anybody, no director's chairs. Like I'm never going to sit down <laughs> doing this. Also, he said, terrible idea. I mean, great, but also terrible for my first movie. Like animals are notoriously difficult to work with. You should avoid them. <laughs> if at all possible, and that's the primary driving force for the narrative of his first film. <laughs> so he said that was a, a lot of work, but still did as much prep as they could, and Caleb, he uh, had Caleb work and bond with the horses for a month before oh, wow, he yeah. was involved. So even though his character is supposed to be new to it all, he's got to he grow into it. Yeah, exactly, it. and by the end of it, he has to be uh, basically a professional, and you you can't just do that as you're filming. <laughs> <laughs> Not with all the other madness, yeah. yeah. Going into some of the real people, and you talked about the end of the film, There, the film is dedicated to an E. Miller, and so I looked that up. Yes, um, yes, I was And like I said this. before, this was the guy who said he bought a horse um, or was involved in this thing, and that's what got him back into getting curious about this group. Yeah. So a week before production, tragically, he was killed during a robbery at his home. Oh, no. Yeah. And Ricky had been uh, recording everything, chrono you know, chronalizing, if that's a word, yeah. all the- It is now. The, the stories and everything. Yeah. So his words were captured in 10 hours of recordings during his research. And so much of his philosophy is put into- Harp, the character, and Idris yeah. used all that audio to get his Philly dialect coaching oh, in, and his sister said, yeah, that's him in the film. So that's what a great wow. legacy for him. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 But his his legacy lives on in that, in basically the main character of the yeah. thing. Um, but like we said, most everybody is somebody that's there. Mill Prattis, who plays a paraplegic cowboy, he is one of the main characters. He started as a kid with this Fletcher Street group. The story about losing his brother is what happened to him and his brother mm. in real life. Ivana Mercedes plays Isha. Her life story is brought up on the screen. She started writing as soon as she was able to sit up. They said mm. all the extras, <laughs> well over 100 yeah. people, all from the community, you know. But the main guy, Ellis Farrell, He's 82 years old. He's the founder of the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club. So he was there since oh, wow. 16, been riding horses in there. It only became a nonprofit in 2004 to accept donations for the okay. free work they're doing. But he poured his earnings as a truck driver into the facilities to keep kids off the street. Yeah. And that's basically the primary operating procedure for it is like give these kids something to do yeah. <laughs> that gives them agency, responsibility, compassion, you know, even god bless it playing football or sports or something yeah, there's like exactly. you can't have aggression with a horse because they'll kill you right yeah right like you have to you real, have to you have real responsibility real, you know real danger um yeah so this was his baby in terms of financing and when he retired he dipped into social security to keep it alive it's all run entirely by volunteers yeah it's got that fred hampton feel to it mm -hmm. you know yeah, yeah, very much so. Started a hundred years ago and has just been, but he, like I said, formalized it as a nonprofit and as a group yeah. after doing it for so long. Wow. This is where the problems begin in terms of the city coming in. Right. Because some of the places they don't even necessarily own, or like the thing where there's a horse in his house. Yeah. That's yeah. not, that's not, but that actually happened for one of the members. Like everything in this is drawn from something 
in real life. I instantly, it was so bizarre. It, it, there's a moment where uh, the main character uh, arrives at his new uh, dwellings and there's just a horse in the living room. <laughs> and and he's, he has to like point it out because his dad doesn't like say anything about it. And instantly I got the feeling that this is so particular and so unique. It has to be real. Yeah. This has to be real. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but, and, and then uh, going into like, well, what is the, what are the ethics in that? What, what is the, <laughs> right. what are the laws yeah. surrounding something like that? Yeah. <laughs> like I've never, like my mom has had horses my entire life. And to think of one inside my home is frightening. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's an extenuating circumstance to be clear with the stables that they have and like the, the sure, facilities sure, yeah, that they yeah. have in terms of the horses, like also the horses they're getting are to be sold for dog food. They're like on the end, they're malnourished, right. they're rehabilitating. So they may look unhealthy, but like the actual places with which they're keeping them as a part of the Fletcher urban riding club, you know, they're doing, <laughs> they're doing their job to right, make these yet. horses. Well, that's this is a, just that's the a, main, the main character's dad was keeping one for, you know, this yeah. not, not to say that the organization was, was doing that or even promoting that at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but just, um, uh, just fascinating that these, I mean, cause it, like you said, everything from the film is taken from something real. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that's and just one of those authentic moments. <laughs> A lot of the situations with the horses being put in other places, like I said, comes from the city coming in. And so they seized a cluster of stables in Brewery Town, which is another mm. area of Philly, demolished it to make way for apartments. So they're displacing 100 horses in the process. Oh, gosh. And they're like, well, we just rehabilitated them or we're not going to. More and more, there are these other stables and other areas that are or they're renting this abandoned place from the city for a dollar. Yeah. You know, nobody wants this land, but then suddenly it gets taken by eminent domain right. and shut down. And what are you to do? And it's also this is for the benefit of the kids in the neighborhood. Right. Now you've taken out what 45 kids have been doing every afternoon. What are they going to do anymore? You know, this is an outlet. So that was a big thing that happened. And then in 2008, animal welfare officials on an anonymous tip raided the Fletcher Street stables, uh. which is reenacted in the film and the yeah. book. And they ordered the removal of 40 horses and seized two for Gosh. illness. And then those were quietly returned because they were found to be healthy by vets, which was never addressed <laughs> oh, or right. forgiven. I love quietly returned. They prance him out and on, you know, in full media coverage. <laughs> yeah, destroyed this this yeah. crazy place. And it's like, oh no, they were actually fine. But then the city bulldozed that stable days later. God. So with donations, Ellis Farrell acquired three lots for the club, moved them to new stables in 2019. But what's happening now is the land dispute of a lot across the street, which I think is also referenced in the film, yeah. is being used or was being used by them as it was just an empty vacant lot, was bought by the Philadelphia Housing Authority for a dollar from the city, and we're going to build housing on it leaving no space for the horses on Fletcher Street that they had to move from all the other oh situations God. that happened. On a dollar deal. As anything. So that becomes the, the end of the film and then into modern times. They need funding to figure out what's going on. So there is a GoFundMe for the Fletcher Street Club that has oh, wow. raised over 100000 which is what they wanted, and they've hit over it towards their goals. Awesome. But then also yeah. Ricky Staub, his friend who's a realtor in Philly, 
the production essentially started their own organization called the Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy okay. to raise money for a permanent stable. A it, and this is a little confusing because it's a wholly separate entity, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like, oh, who do you donate to? But their thing is more a whole other initiative in relation to horses in general for the city of Philly. Mm, gotcha. So if you just wanted to, get, I'll post links to both of them. But if you just cared about the the Fletcher Street one, yeah. There's money that goes to them, and then this whole organization brought about by the works of the film is a much larger. And they're, you know, they need two million dollars, and this is going to be a thing where they own the land. This is right. a permanent thing as a staple, but It'll it's be not like an affiliated. umbrella thing that they'll end yeah. up helping out the Fletcher Street folks, right? But it's not a part of that community in right. that community right. for them. But that's these are both things that are still ongoing. Gosh, because they still need help even after the film. Well, uh, hopefully the film is getting more spotlight on this because it's in the Netflix top 10 and it's just come out. So hopefully that this uh, this gains some popularity and and helps these organizations hit the numbers they need to to keep these things alive. Yeah, because there's other organizations. There was a 2003 documentary about the Federation of Black Cowboys that's in Brooklyn. And then I had seen maybe in the newspaper or something about the Compton Cowboys which oh, really? have been around in LA since the 80s. Oh man, I don't yeah. know about that. But I'll post links to both of those oh, cool. articles. Yeah. But just as a little end note in terms of the whole thing, like you said, building awareness, Ellis Farrell said, the only time black communities see people riding horses, it's always white people. We're trying to let them know that we also ride horses and they see us riding horses. They'll know they can ride horses too. Hmm. Giving the kids something to do yeah. to a positive direction. Yeah. Yeah, this is cool, man. This is really, this is really cool. This is a story that really deserves to to be out there and get the attention it's getting. This is really cool. I hope you guys enjoyed. I, I love the history of this. <laughs> yeah. Because um, hours ago, knew nothing about this. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, is, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. We love you so much. Check us out at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're watching. You never know when we'll do an episode on your favorite thing. We will catch you next week.